This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik. Today, we are discussing pancreatic cancer. Now, this is a condition that we don't usually think of with optimism, but there is hope for better outcomes if the cancer is diagnosed early. And I'm sure the same is said for many other diseases, uh, more so with cancers. And I'm sure my guest, consultant, clinical oncologist, Dr. Jennifer Leong, would agree with me. And she's here in the studio to share more about the urgent need to treat pancreatic cancer if it can be diagnosed early. And how would we be able to uh, sort of uh, identify it as early as possible? and also in the studio with her clinical psychologist from the National Cancer Society of Malaysia, Lee Kai, And uh, I'll be getting her to shed more light on how emotional and psychological support is also important uh, on top of medical care to help patients and caregivers navigate this difficult journey. Uh, Dr. Jennifer and Kai, thank you so much for joining me today. How are the both of you? We are good. Thank you so much for having us here today. Yeah. Very honoured. And uh, do call us with your questions. Mm. I think pancreatic cancer is something that may raise a lot of doubts and questions in people's minds. This is a good chance for you to um, hear more from the experts themselves. Our number to call is 0377332900. You can also WhatsApp our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. So of course, course, we do always want to start with um, that sort of basic understanding of what we're discussing today. So Dr. Jennifer, what exactly is pancreatic cancer? So cancer is often uh, named after the site of which uh, the cancer cell arises from. So in pancreatic cancer, it denotes the cancer cell that arises from pancreas. And pancreas is an organ uh, that is situated behind our stomach and in front of the spine. So the function of the pancreas is to actually produce enzymes that help with the um, breakdown of fats, proteins and carbohydrates. And that is called the exocrine function of the pancreas. And there's also another function of it, which is the endocrine function. And it releases hormones that control the blood sugar in our uh, body. Mm. So the most common type of pancreatic cancer is known as pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma which essentially means the cancer cell that arises from the duct along the pancreatic uh, organ. And um, I said earlier that, you know, when people hear the word pancreatic or the diagnosis, um, we always tend to have this sense of um, doom and gloom about it. What is it about pancreatic cancer that is partic- that makes it particularly complex? So pancreatic cancer is complex in the sense that most of the patients present late at diagnosis. So essentially when they present, they're already at very advanced stage. Essentially the cancer has spread to other organs and it is harder to treat at this point of time. And they often present with lots of symptoms that need urgent attention. Do we know anything about what might be causes or maybe more risk factors for developing pancreatic cancer? That's a very good question. So the exact uh, cost or etiology is not known, but there are a lot of high-risk factors that's associated with the development of pancreatic cancer. One of them is smoking. So smoking is a very high-risk factor and is shown to have 
people who smoke have two times the risk, two-folds the risk of developing pancreatic cancer compared to those who doesn't. Obesity in early childhood is also been shown to be a risk factor to developing pancreatic cancer in later of lives. Beyond that, uh, also we would like to highlight patients who have or individuals who have family history of pancreatic cancer, i.e. a sibling or a parent who have pancreatic cancer, it should be screened because there is a 10% chance of it being inheritable and it's due to a default in a gene such as the BRCA2 gene mutation or a Lynch syndrome. And so by identifying ourselves early here, we can get genetic counselling and hence being screened early. Mm. Um, Kai, from the perspective of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia, now, um, of course, we know that a lot of work is being done to raise awareness about um, more, I guess I would say, common cancers like breast and uh, lung and perhaps colorectal, cervical. Uh, but what uh, is the National Cancer Society of Malaysia doing with regard to education about pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so, so actually recently we have collaborated with Severe Malaysia's to come up with an education <coughs> video series uh, with the team of Together We Are Stronger. So we have come up with a few topics uh, to educate the public about what is pancreatic cancer and the importance of early detections and the importance of seeking clinical psychology support. So for them to actually can increase the awareness on the pancreatic cancer and also the mental health part. Mm. So, um, yeah, mental health, emotional, psychological support, a a big um, part of the conversation that I want to get to later. Mm. But coming back to understanding the cancer itself, Dr. Jennifer, um, already we're hearing about um, it's usually diagnosed very late, um, patients coming in late. Um, You know, what kinds of... um, signs and symptoms would there even be to help patients detect it early, if at all? So often the patient present late, not because they want to, but because the symptoms are quite vague and often overlapping with many other um, common symptoms that we have. So often when the patient presents to my clinic and they take me back to the history of when all these start, so one of the common symptoms that they present with initially would be persistent abdominal bloatedness that isn't going away with... uh, over-the-counter medicines such as those that we take to relieve uh, gastritis. As well as um, some of them feel like they feel full easily after taking very um, short meals and this is not uh, their typical appetite or, or meal pattern. So also I would like to highlight that some patients present with more um, subtle symptoms such as back pain in the middle back and that is actually a result of a referred pain from the tumour compression. So the key is how do we know if it's a persistent symptom, my advice would be to seek uh, an expert opinion. And a lot of time is to see a gastroenterologist and get further examination done. When you say persistent, from what you've heard, how long does it typically go on for? So I would say if you have seen a, um, firstly, your family practitioner and you've taken some medicine to control the symptoms for about two to four weeks and the symptoms does not get better, it gets better and it comes back. So it's when uh, there should be an early warning sign to get treated. Apart from that, often patients also present with constitutional symptoms and these are very important to pick up. And often it will be things like easily fatigued, uh, unexplained weight loss, 
uh, loss of appetite. And these are actually what we say are early constitutional symptoms. And this may precede the diagnosis a few months before um, someone gets tested. Mm-hmm. And of course, in very advanced stage, a lot of patients may present with jaundice. Or what happens is their family notice that there's yellowing of the skin or eye, and that's when an obstruction has taken place. Mm. But if we want to talk about sort of the early days, okay. we're looking out for the persistent abdominal bloatedness, that feeling of um, being full even with small meals. Um, would there be any abdominal pain? Abdominal pain can arise as well, especially if there is actually a tumour compressive effect, then mm. yes. Mm. And also backache. Mm. So definitely signs to not just try and brush away, especially as you said, after two to four weeks and it keeps persisting, right? Um, if we look at um, trying to achieve early detection and um, what difference that would make for outcomes and survival and and quality of life if you can get treatment in place. Um, What's the difference when you see somebody who can come in early compared to somebody who comes in at the later stages? Yes, um, again, a very important question to answer. Like many other cancers, if a patient presents early at an early stage, then the prognosis or essentially the survival outcome improves significantly. So someone who presents at an early stage of pancreatic cancer, as in localised disease, um, their survival rate in five years is about 50%. Again, this is already significantly lower than many other cancers. So what essentially this means is that 5 out of 10 patients who present with early stage disease may eventually have a disease relapse by five years. So that's why it's important to have close surveillance and close follow-up with your doctors even after you've completed treatment. As opposed to someone who have a locally advanced disease where the disease has spread to the regional lymph nodes or structures such as blood vessels, so essentially a stage 3 disease, um, the five-year survival rate is about 12 to 15%. So from 50%, it has now dipped to almost uh, 15%. And unfortunately for someone presented with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, the five-year survival rate is as dismal as 3%. Mm. And 3% would mean, if you compare to that 5 out of 10 earlier who would relapse within five years, 3%, yeah, that is... Yeah, 3%. So again, a pancreatic cancer ranks the third highest in terms of mortality when it comes to cancer. So all of us have a part to play when it comes to urging our loved one, even ourselves, if we have symptoms, as subtle and as vague as it is, I think it is important to not uh, undermine it and get early treatment. I guess it doesn't help if um, people keep hearing this narrative, pancreatic cancer um, is very serious, it's hard to treat. Um, Would that give rise to this misconception that, well, early detection won't even help then? Would you like to correct that? Yes, and that's why we're all here today, trying to change the narrative that early detection of pancreatic cancer, we have patients who have survived beyond decades with pancreatic cancer. So it's not a death sentence, but definitely if someone is is, is diagnosed with advanced stage, then um, it is much more difficult to treat. The treatment becomes more complex. So if someone is detected at early stage, surgery is the mainstay treatment and followed by often what we know as adjuvant therapy. So often patients are offered a systemic chemotherapy 
either in the form of IV intravenous chemotherapy, oral chemotherapy, between 8 to 12 cycles. And often the patients ask, why would I need further chemotherapy? That is because we know a lot of time there is micro-seedlings of the disease. And the surgery is to remove the gross part of the disease. And the, and the chemotherapy is to further enhance the local control. Mm. Uh, making sure you get every last bit of it, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, we'll go for a quick break and come back to continue our discussion about pancreatic cancer and why early diagnosis can give patients hope for better outcomes and survival. Dr. Jennifer Leung, consultant, clinical oncologist, and Lee Ka Yi, clinical psychologist from National Cancer Society of Malaysia, in the studio with me. Um, call us with your questions, 03-7733-2900. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be right back on Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. And my guests in the studio with me today, consultant clinical oncologist, Dr. Jennifer Leung, and clinical psychologist, Lee Ka Yi, from the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. Call us if you have questions about pancreatic cancer or any concerns that you would like to raise. The number to call is 03-7733-2900. You can also WhatsApp our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, we've discussed the importance of early diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and contrasted survival as well as outcomes and just basically giving patients more time. Um, you know, uh, and better quality of life if they can be diagnosed and treated early. Um, you talked about uh, treatment options for those um, diagnosed at early stages, Dr. Jennifer. Um, is there anything you'd like to add with regard to treatment for the advanced or maybe later stages as well? The treatment landscape for pancreatic cancer has also evolved dramatically over the last decade. So even in patients with advanced uh, pancreatic cancer, we can offer treatment and most of the time, the backbone of the treatment will be systemic chemotherapy. And again, the type of chemotherapy often is based on the patient's fitness level. And this is something where the oncologist will discuss in depth with the patient. So systemic chemotherapy is often uh, offered because it can provide rapid relief of the symptoms. And often a patient with pancreatic cancer <coughs> present with disease in the liver. And we know they will have acute liver failure soon after being diagnosed. So this is where chemotherapy comes in urgently. But beyond that, we also now advocate molecular testing or what is known as next-generation sequencing or in short, NGS. And this is actually done uh, to check for any molecular alterations in the tumour. Why is this important? Because we can offer further therapy such as oral targeted therapy. And so, like how I always say it to my patient in uh, the most simplistic term, if you find a door that fits and then you find a lock that actually locks up, the key that locks up that door, then you can, uh, you can offer a better tumour control. So this is what we offer at this point. And also genetic testing to the patient. Because if the patient has a uh, mutation in the BRCA2 mutation, there's actually an oral targeted therapy that can also be offered to the patient. Right, so genetic testing isn't just to identify uh, history um, and sort of the risk to 
other family members, but also to sort of improve the prospects of treatment. Yes. All right. Now, this is a difficult conversation, regardless of advances, advancements in therapy and what hope you can offer, that diagnosis and um, setting expectations and targets will still be um, a very tough conversation to have. I will ask you first, Dr. Jennifer, and also turn to Kai for her thoughts. You know, how do you balance that sort of the reality um, of uh, disease outcomes, but also um, staying positive and helping the patient get through this journey? Yeah, it's never easy. So I think firstly is actually to um, be able to have a very honest conversation with your patient and often the caretakers. We must not forget caretakers plays a very important role in the physical and mental support of the patient. So to have this conversation about how um, extensive the disease is, and I think we can be diplomatic about it a lot of time, um, and also then to manage the expectations with the patient. So about what is the outcome? Often in patients who have uh, early stage, the aim of the treatment is, of course, for curative purpose. And someone who had an advanced pancreatic cancer, the treatment is for control of symptoms and often palliation. So the treatment should not be detrimental to their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, To the extent where their uh, time with family members is shortened instead of being lengthened. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to be able to make sense of your treatment. And oftentimes in patients, uh, because it takes it takes time for them to cope with the diagnosis, especially a diagnosis like pancreatic cancer. But eventually when they do and they're accepting of your uh, treatment strategy, as well as the support that's given uh, by your team. So it involves a lot of team members. That's why I think organisations such as NCSM come in uh, very valuable in terms of giving holistic care to the patients and family members, as well as the um, palliative care team. Mm. So all this comes in to actually provide the best care to patients. So, Kaye, from your perspective, what is that emotional journey that patients and their caregivers go through? Actually, just like I do agree with what Dr. Jennifer is saying, is open and honest communication is very important. So in uh, our site, we will more focus on the quality of life considerations. And for the emotional journeys that they actually go through, I would say... It's more about up and downs, mm. a lot of mixed range of feelings like shock and denial, especially when they get the diagnosis at first. And then they will feel anger and fear as well because they're not sure that whether uh, they can survive or not and how many lifespan they can still remain in and all that. And also, I think they will also feel grief and depressions because all this sudden loss of health and normalcy is not something they, they expected. Yeah. yeah, and I would say come to a certain point, they might feel hope and acceptance as well because um, uh, with the available support system, with the help of family members and mental health professionals and with the healthcare professionals, doctors, I think they come to a certain point, they started to accept their diagnosis and start to look for treatment and with hope and acceptance. And at the same time, they have guilt as well because they think they are the burden for the family. And they are the burden for them, uh, for all the peoples that is around them. So I'll say all these feelings sometimes can be better, but sometimes can be quite intense. So until they are unbearable. So that's, that is the time uh, they come to a mental health professional to seek help. Mm. What kind of help would alleviate um, the distress that they're going through? Or at least 
help them to cope with it better. You mean as in psychological perspective kind of help? Um, in NCSM, we do have the clinical psychological service to help them to support. So we support with the patients from the diagnosis stage until the survival and also end-of-life care. So the support that we are given is uh, emotional support, emotional management. And also we teach them how to cope effectively and learn how to communication communicate effectively as well and then um, we also because we as a clinical psychologist we can formulate diagnosis so we actually do screen for their mental health disturbance yeah and also very important is we improve their quality of life so we put the quality of life as the main priority and considerations Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um where uh sort of uh, can anyone uh, who's been diagnosed um, access NCSM services and um, you know how uh, affordable would it be? Yeah, actually we provide a free service for patients and caregiver, mm. so there's no charge at all. Mm. Yeah, and so they can just inquire at NCSM. Yes, they can reach out to us through our toll free helpline one eight hundred eighty eight and one thousand. All right. Yeah. Um, we'll put that number in our podcast as well later. Yeah. But what about um peer support, Kai? Yeah. Um. How important is that in helping patients to sort of have an outlet and uh, seek support as well? Yeah, I think uh, peer support is very important. So in NCSM, we do have this peer support service as well. So it's very, very important because uh, some of the patients or caregivers, they prefer to talk to someone who has a similar experience because there is shared understanding and a sense of community. So we will connect those patients and caregivers to the relevant support group, like caregiver support group, uh, pancreatic cancer support group. But it's very rare rare for pancreatic cancer. Yeah, Mm. but for any other general cancer, we do have... Uh, relevant support group to connect with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that unique experience of pancreatic cancer, I think, is also, mm. it's not a one size fits all, right? Yeah. You have cancer, therefore talk to this other person. Mm. Um, it is still a very, very uh, complex yes. uh, uh, mm. experience. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts, Dr. Jennifer, on uh, how important it is to understand or, or rather to, to sort of um, be able to put um patients own needs right up there together with their clinical needs so i know that i think your training kicks in and you're like okay you need this 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 kind of uh, therapies right um and there, there must be so much to talk about with the patients how do you bring in asking them well what do you really want um you know uh, what do you expect out of this this journey yeah, I like this question best because I think um, it's cancer. The diagnosis of cancer is an urgent one, right? Uh, often the patient wants to get treatment started as soon as you can. And um, in the past, we've been very patriarchal in that it's been very clinical. So the diagnosis of cancer. But I think we have in modern times uh, stay away from just looking at a patient as a cancer or as an entity of a disease. So I, to me, patient's autonomy is the most important. So patient's wish. Hence, more so especially, um, I think in early stage, more so in the advanced stage. So it's important to ask the patient, what do you really want? Mm. What we often see in the clinic scenario is that sometimes the patient does not want any treatment because they just want uh, comfort care. And I think it's not right for anyone to charge that kind of uh, um, 
wish mm-hmm. as long as the patient understand fully what are the potential implications <coughs> and complications that may arise and to know that we will still support their decision no matter what. But often we also get a um, conflict between what the patient wished and what the family wants. Mm-hmm. And that is where I think it takes a lot of effort and a lot of uh, uh, a conversation that goes back and forth for, um, between you know, us. And so as doctors, I think we sometimes do need to give a bit more time so that we can explain it you know, well to the family and to the patient, of course. Mm. Is that um, conversation, that sort of almost three-way conversation between healthcare providers patient and caregivers, something that NCSM also helps to support? Yes. Mm. Yeah, we do have the uh, second opinion from the medical doctor from NCSM. So basically it's um, like, for example, some of the patients, if they don't agree or they have, uh, maybe they, how to put this in... (laughs) Maybe they are not sure whether what the doctor's or oncologist's uh, suggestions <laughs> is. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but most of the time they will come to NCSM, they will call to our top free helpline to ask that whether they can get second opinions from NCSM to see is there any other way they can go. Because I found very interesting fact is that a lot of people, they are quite refusing to do chemotherapy. Yeah, mm. I think a lot of, uh, mm. you know, in the public as well, uh, it's a stigma to yep. mention the word cancer and mm. chemotherapy. Yes. And often um, the reason for delay in seeking treatment may be the fact that they know that they may need chemotherapy. Mm. So I think given in the right selected group of patients, chemotherapy has shown t- to actually cure patients and improve the outcome. Mm. But I think the, the question is maybe someone has a bad experience with family members mm. who had it and passed on subsequently because of it. Mm. So I think we're here to change the narrative mm. that if we watch the patients carefully and we select the right group of patients, you can potentially give the patient a better outcome than not giving it. True. So they come to NCSM for uh, second opinion, but we still uh, suggest that it's all up to the main doctor, the oncologist they are following. Mm-hmm. So that one is just an alternative they can looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're looking for reassurance. Yes. yes. Right? Yeah. And I think it's uh, not wrong for patients to want to seek second opinion yep. mm-hmm. because it matters to do with their life decision, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I think what's important is whether you seek a second or third opinion, mm-hmm. eventually to come to the understanding of the disease mm-hmm. and understand the rationale of the treatment that's being given. And also to understand you have the freedom to select the treatment that mm-hmm. you wish to go for. Everything's still up to patients' decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bringing in caregivers, though, they are there together with the patient all the way. Um, What do you feel that caregivers need to know? And this, again, is something that may not uh, intuitively come up in the early conversations because there's so much discussion about we need to do this now, now, now. But um, in terms of helping caregivers also understand the disease and uh, what their loved ones will be going through, and what their loved ones would experience when they're at home, in fact, even. What do they need to know about um, the impact on patients physically and as well as um, emotionally, perhaps physically first? Yeah. So if a patient is undergoing a treatment such as chemotherapy, it's important to educate the patient as well as the family members on the potential acute side effects. And often the most serious one that we want them to present early to hospital 
would be a fever that is not resolving because it could be an early sign of infection. So we try to let the family know uh, on the potential side effects that may arise from the treatment so that they can cope better and they're not caught by surprise. And often the patient goes back with uh, anti-vomiting, uh, anti-gastric medicine. So they are being supported wholeheartedly and, and often there is a, a hotline that they can call or mm. reach out to the doctor as well. Mm, all right. Um, we'll actually go for a quick break first and then I'll come back and ask Kai about um, what caregivers should understand about patients' emotional distress and uh, how to support them as well as how to support caregivers themselves, mm. you know, there's caregiver Absolutely. fatigue and stress as well. Um, call us if you have any questions, 03-777-32900 or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. We're discussing pancreatic cancer with consultant clinical oncologist Dr. Jennifer Leong and clinical psychologist Lee Kai. We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. On the show today, we're discussing pancreatic cancer with my guests, Dr. Jennifer Leong, consultant clinical oncologist, and Lee Ka Yi, a clinical psychologist with the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. We talked about what caregivers need to understand about the disease and its um, effects on patients, um, perhaps more on the clinical and physical side of things uh, as they undergo uh, treatment like chemotherapy and what to look out for. Now, um, Kai, turning to you, um, caregivers are going through their own stress and, and grieving process as well, I'm sure. And on top of that, they need to have that empathy and compassion for the person they are um, caring for and looking after. Um, how do you help them sort of view this? How do you help them uh, understand what their loved ones are going through? Mm. <clears throat> so basically, um, like what just now Dr. Jennifer say the open and honest communications between the patients and caregiver is very, very important. So sometimes uh, those who call into our helpline, the main problem is both have different needs. Mm. They have different goals. Mm. So that's when psychologists can come in to help to intervene. So most of the time we will ask from two parties and then to see what are the needs and the goals that they actually desire for or the needs they actually want. Mm. So uh, we'll try to intervene to see whether we can come to a win-win solutions. But most of the time, we will follow the patients. We will help the caregiver to understand what the patients actually wants. Because patient is the one who going through the treatment alone mm. and going through all the challenges. So for us, what we will do is we separate them after the discussions, we will separate them. Then we will see the patients alone. Then we will see a caregiver alone also. So we help to address the underlying needs and all the challenges that they are having. And also to learn how to improve the communications between one another. So both of them can have a shared understanding like um, why um, you have these needs and why you have that needs. So to come to a shared understanding. Mm. Yeah. 
I'm sure most of the time it's all unspoken, yep. right? Because everybody, mm. everybody is in sort of in action mode. We need to do this. We need yes. to do that, and mm. nobody's sitting down and talking. Yes, yes. I mean nobody's asking the patient what do you really want? Yeah. How do you feel? Sometimes the patient feels like they are in a motion mm. to just keep going and going. Mm. And I think what will be sad is after the end of the fifth or sixth cycle, the patient doesn't even know what's the aim of the chemotherapy. Yep. So I think mm. we, we do need to make sure that we go to the level of, you know, the patient's understanding. Mm. Yeah. And as I mentioned, caregivers also facing a lot of stress and pressure. Um, what have you found, Kai, that would help caregivers manage their own um, uh, emotional and physical distress as well? For what I actually did is uh, I will prepare a caregiving actions plan for the caregivers to fill out. So basically, the caregiver can list out the tasks that they need to help the patients to arrange, like, for example, appointments and uh, manage the housework and all that and try to list out the tasks that they need to do daily and then also try to uh, I will try to advise them to delegate the task to some other family members that can help them. Because I realise most of the time, caregiver they will take up a lot of responsibilities. Mm. Yeah. And then they juggle with multiple responsibilities until it affects their own well-being. Mm. So that's why this caregiver action plan is very, very important. So from the list that you can... Uh, from the task that you have listed down, you can try to delegate and then you see how you... how each other can help one another. Mm. So another thing is, uh, I will always suggest uh, caregivers, please taking care of yourself first beca- mm. be- before you want to take care of the patients. Mm. Because if you, you your emotional is not really stable, then you will affect the patients. Then when you affect the patients, then you will affect their physical well-being. Mm. Yeah. And not feel guilty about taking care of yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or asking for help. Yes. Dr. Jennifer, um, I want to just very briefly look at the role of palliative care uh, in this journey of pancreatic cancer. When should patients and caregivers um, start having this conversation with a palliative care physician? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, I think people still, in general, the public still perceive palliative care as end-of-life care. Um, and they see it as, again, a death sentence that my oncologist has given up on me and there is just, uh, you know, uh, no way to go forward. And actually, we are trying to say no. So the earlier the introduction to palliative care, many studies have shown that it has improved the outcome, the um, just the whole holistic way of treating the patient. So the role of palliative care isn't just um, giving morphine or painkillers, but it is also to listen to what the patient's wishes at the end of the day. Um, perhaps there is a family members that they want to see but haven't had a chance to meet. And a lot of this wish and uh, desire cannot sometimes be spoken to the own family members. Mm. So sometimes someone neutral, such as a pal care, will come in to help. And often the palliative care I find to be very helpful in that they collaborate with the hospice mm. team in Malaysia mm. to try to provide um, necessary aid to the patient, mm. such as uh, someone who needs a uh, home oxygen concentrator 
or a nursing bed which costs a lot of money. So this is where the palliative care comes in to help to arrange with the hospice, to arrange for all this medical aid. Mm. So in short, I think palliative care shouldn't be deemed negatively. In fact, when your doctor advises uh, uh, the patient or the family members to seek medical uh, help from the palliative care, it's actually to improve your outcome early. Mm. Improve your quality of life. Right? Yes. Mm. Um, I just want to uh, look I guess it, this is a zooming out. Um, what message can we share with the general public when it comes to uh, preventing or reducing the risk of pancreatic cancer? Now we're just sort of looking uh, before we get to this point where we have to talk about treatments and things like that, right? So as we've spoken before, some of the risk factors that can be modified are such as smoking. So cessation of smoking not only reduces the risk of developing pancreatic cancer, but also many other cancers such as lung cancer. And also, I think, to uh, prevent obesity to a certain extent, so exercising and uh, eating the right diet. Mm. And of course, if you identify yourself or loved one to be of high risk of developing pancreatic cancer, if two family members in the family has had pancreatic cancer or someone immediate to you, such as a sibling or a parent has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, please do seek genetic counselling early. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that can be done with Cancer Research Malaysia. All right. Mm. And in the... The risk managing risk factors or reducing them is just such common sense things, actually, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, we have been talking about smoking, um, healthy lifestyles, um, with in relation to many other uh, diseases as well. Just very quickly, coming back to palliative care, we have a question here: Who watches over palliative care? It should not be left to run on its own. So this, I'm not really sure where this question. Um, uh, what it's trying to get at um, the is it the healthcare professional? Um, so perhaps I'll, I'll try to um, understand the question. In that palliative care does not run on its own; it's mm. usually hospital based. So it will be a team set up by the hospital team, and usually it comprises the palliative consultant, palliative care consultants, medical officers, as well as nurses who are trained to mm. care for this group of patients. And of course, uh, then we they collaborate closely with hospice, yes. which are non-governmental organisations mm. uh, all around Malaysia. All right. Um, in wrapping up our conversation, uh, Kai, perhaps you could provide um, some resources for our listeners to um, find out more about pancreatic cancer, but also to reach out if uh, they have received the diagnosis and are looking for the kind of support we've been talking about. Um, where can they find out more about NCSM services? Yep, sure. So if they are interested to know more about the resources, uh, even just the general cancers or pancreatic cancers, they can just go to our Facebook or Instagram and you just type uh, National Cancer Society Malaysia. Remember just now I mentioned the education video series that... Uh, NCSM and Severe Malaysia have collaborated so they can actually just go to the Facebook and Instagram and they can uh, have to they can see the video series there lah. Mm. so for more further information if they are required they can just go to our website cancer.org.my or just reach out to our toll free hotline one eight hundred eighty eight and 1000 Alright yeah. um, Thank you so much for joining me for this discussion today Dr. Jennifer Leong Consultant Clinical Oncologist and Lee Kai Clinical Psychologist from National Cancer Society of Malaysia You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9 
You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.